Uh, hopefully this will make sense, just kind of diving into the middle of this, this story as we walk through Acts. Paul's about to start out on his third missionary journey here. This is his final missionary journey, or at least the final one that's recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. He's going to spend the vast bulk of his time on his third missionary journey in the city of Ephesus. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks to unpack uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus this week and next week. Next week, our own Brian Hammonds is going to be filling the pulpit while Susan and I are in Birmingham for our son's wedding. And so you guys will be unpacking the second half of chapter 19 as you look at a riot that erupts on the streets of Ephesus as a result of the gospel taking root and bearing fruit in the lives of the people in the church of Ephesus. But this morning, I want us to look at three snapshots of this disciple-making ministry that's going on in the city of Ephesus. And these snapshots will show us what happens when the church, you and I, when the church consistently and persistently over time holds out a biblical gospel to the mission field to which it's been sent year after year after year after year. Because church, that's what the Lord is asking of us. He's tapped this church family on the shoulder and said, I want you to be witnesses in this community to the people who live, work, and play just outside of these doors. And to be his witnesses to them means to commit ourselves to gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making long-term. To continue and persist in that work until either Jesus comes back or he takes us home. So let's watch as this happens in Ephesus. As Paul and his companions give themselves to a gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making in and around the city of Ephesus. We're going to read beginning in verse 23 of chapter 18 and continue through verse 20 of chapter 19. After spending some time there, that is in Antioch at his home church, after he finished the second missionary journey, after spending some time there, he departed and went from place to one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was eloquent, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, 
No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases, diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, where would we be without this? Thank you that you are a God of self-revelation. You have revealed yourself to us in what you have made, but you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You've given us truth here. We trust that this is your very word. And so it contains only truth. And so, Father, being what it is, Father, we ask that you'd give us not just understanding so that we're smarter about what it means, but, Lord, that you might, through this truth, impact our lives and transform us to look more like Jesus. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters within the hearing of my voice, Lord, that we would look more like Jesus, having uh, listened to your word and obeyed what it says. Father, we pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that the gospel would ring loud and clear to them, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for rescue. We ask that you do this, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning as we seek to unpack this text is two things. First, I want us to try to isolate some descriptors of the kind of disciple-making ministry that was happening here in Ephesus. What was it like? So that we might pattern our disciple-making ministry 
after theirs. Because that's what God has called us to, disciple making, inside and outside the church. That's first. Secondly, based on that, based on the kind of disciple making ministry they're engaging in in Ephesus, what happens? I want us to look at three snapshots of what occurred in Ephesus as a result of the kind of disciple-making ministry that they gave themselves to day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, so that we might be encouraged that as we give ourselves to a, to a like disciple-making ministry, that we can expect these same sorts of things to begin happening in and through us if we give ourselves to this for the long haul, not just the short term. So how can we describe their disciple-making? I've got three descriptors for you. We could come up with more, but three that I've identified that I want us to just try to hold on to to describe their disciple-making ministry. First, it was gospel-centered. It was gospel-centered. This is nothing new. Paul and his companions did not set out on these missionary journeys where they would be beaten, where they would be stoned, where they would be rejected, where they would be reviled, simply to teach them about morals and ethics. Their, their aim was not to try to simply improve the moral virtue of the people. Neither was their aim to, to, to risk their lives simply for the sake of improving the lives of the people that they were ministering to, that they would be more healthy and less sick, more wealthy and less poor. That's not why they did this. No, the ultimate purpose of their journeys was to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their aim was the proclamation of the gospel. And we've seen it all throughout the book of Acts, whether it is Peter and James in Jerusalem or Philip in Samaria or or now Paul and his companions as they set out and head into the nations. Their aim was to tell people about the person and work of Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, we see this in a number of places. In verse 25 of chapter 18, we're told that Apollos taught the word Uh, taught accurately the things concerning Jesus in Ephesus. Certainly that included the gospel. He taught the things concerning Jesus accurately. Three verses later, when he's in Corinth up in Achaia, we're told that he was showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. In other words, he was preaching the gospel from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that the prophets had spoken about. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19, we see Paul holding out the gospel to the unconverted religious that were called disciples there in Ephesus. Friends, when Jesus commands us to be his witnesses, that's the command to proclaim the gospel. And what is the gospel. It is the good news that although God created everything good, man rebelled against God and made everything, including himself, bad. And that now because of our sinful condition, we deserve eternal judgment and punishment. But God made a way for sinners like us to be forgiven 
and reconciled back to him. And that way is by sending his son, Jesus Christ, that we just symbolized in the Lord's Supper. That he sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to put on flesh and to live among us perfectly, following the law without error, achieving a righteousness that we never could in a million lifetimes, and then dying on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay, and then rising victorious from the grave three days later, proving that he had paid the price for all those who would profess faith in him. That's the gospel. And Jesus sent us to proclaim that good news to this community. God did not send us to this community to tell this, the people in this community how to have a better life or, or how to be a better version of themselves or, or even how they can live a life that is good and moral. No, he sent us here to tell people the good news about Jesus, his person and his work. He sent us here to tell lost people how they can be found. He tell, told us to, 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 he sent us here so that we might proclaim gospel amnesty over those who are held captive by sin and death. For Paul and his companions, their ministry was a gospel-centered ministry, and ours should be as well. The second descriptor of their ministry is that their disciple-making was word-based. It was not only gospel-centered, it was word-based. Again, whether it's Apollos there in Ephesus, whom we're told in verse 24 was competent in the scriptures, or whether it's Achilla and Priscilla who pull Apollos aside, and and we're told that they explained to him the ways of God more accurately. Certainly that included a significant amount of Bible study. Or again, Apollos, as he's in Corinth at the end of chapter 18, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus Or whether it's Paul himself who spends three months in the synagogue in Ephesus reasoning from the scriptures and then spends two full years doing so from the hall of Tyrannus to the extent that we're told in verse 10 that this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard what? Paul's storytelling? No. Paul's testimony? No. Paul's uh, wisdom? No. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Two whole years of laboring in the word, preaching the word. To the extent that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And then lastly, as a result of what happened with the sons of Sceva there in the closing parts of what we read. We're told in verse 20 of chapter 19 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I can't think of a better way that I would hope that one day that the the pulpit ministry of New Branch Community Church would be described, that we would be so anchored to God's word that generations from now would look back and say, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily among them. But, but it's not just about the pulpit ministry. As we look here on the pages of Scripture, this was not simply due to Paul's preaching. When Luke writes that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, he's not just referring to Paul's preaching, but to the effect that the word had in the lives of the church. 
the word of the Lord and the life of the church continue to increase and prevail mightily. Church, if we want to see in our church disciples grow and be strengthened, if we want to see the unconverted religious come to genuine faith in Christ, if we want to see believers reorient their affection so much that they love Jesus more than their sins and they begin to fight against their sin with the gospel and mortify their flesh to the glory of God, if we want to see this, then we must have a firm grip on Scripture. We must be based on the Word. Disciples of Jesus will not grow in the faith if the church does not provide a healthy and robust diet of the scriptures. And this speaks to both the quality and the quantity of what we ought to be feeding the flock. If we feed the flock man's wisdom or worldly counsel or just very practical advice, but it doesn't come from the scriptures, then we cannot expect the flock to grow spiritually. Instead, the flock will atrophy and will weaken such that it doesn't look a whole lot different from the world around it. But it's also about the quantity. Because if we skimp on feeding the flock the word of God, then we'll likewise cause her to waste away to nothing. That would be like feeding a room full of hungry teenagers salad. It's not going to satisfy them. They need meat. They need potatoes. They need, they need vegetables. They might want pizza, but they need meat and potatoes and vegetables. Church, if we want to be a disciple-making church that makes a difference ultimately in this community to the glory of God, then we can't skimp on God's word. Instead, what we want to do is to lay before our flock a banquet of God's word so that we might feast on it. We are a room full of spiritual teenagers and we are famished and we need to grow. And the best thing for us is to feed ourselves from God's word. So that was their disciple-making ministry. It was gospel-centered, it was word-based, and then thirdly, it was Jesus-exalting. It was Jesus exalting. Again, whether it was Apollos, who there in Ephesus is teaching accurately the things of Jesus, or whether it's Apollos later in Corinth showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He lifts up Jesus. Whether it's Paul, who, who there in Ephesus, he elevates the baptism of Jesus over the baptism of John. Or whether it's that evil spirit there with the sons of Sceva who says, we know Jesus, but who are you? In other words, we can overpower you, but we can't overpower Jesus, which ends up resulting in the people, as we're told in the end of that, extolling the name of Jesus, making much of the name of Jesus. That's what Paul and his companions did. Not only were they gospel-centered and word-based, but they made much of Jesus. And we need to make much of Jesus as well in our preaching, in our conversations with one another, both inside the church and outside the church. We need to make much of Jesus, church. We need to extol the name of Jesus Christ. And that only makes sense 
Because Jesus told us to be his witnesses. And if we're to be his witnesses, then he is the hero of our witness for him. He's the hero of the story. So church, let's make much of Jesus, not just in our preaching, but in our conversations with one another. So that's kind of how I see their disciple-making ministry. It was gospel-centered. It was word-based. It was Jesus-exalting. But what happened as a result of it? What, what happened in Ephesus as a result of this kind of disciple-making ministry? So let's shift gears now and, and, and walk through these three stories. There's really three concise stories here. There's the story of Apollos in Ephesus. There's the story of, of Paul in Ephesus as he deals with those who had only known the baptism of John. And then there's the story of the seven sons of Sceva. As we walk through this and see what the results were of Paul and his companions... Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, laboring in a gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting, disciple-making ministry. First, the result was disciples are strengthened. The disciples were strengthened. They were equipped. They were trained. They were sanctified. They grew. And we see this in verses 23 through 28. First, in verse 23, as Paul sets out on his third missionary journey, he doesn't go directly to Ephesus. Instead, he takes the inland route, the, 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 the longer route. Told in verse 23, he went from place to place, from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And this is kind of what Paul did. He went back through the churches that he had planted on his first and second missionary journey. And he was visiting each one of them, strengthening the disciples and strengthening the churches. Why? Because they needed to be strengthened. They needed to grow. And we all do. They needed to be strengthened because just like human babies, baby Christians don't come out full grown and mature. They need to be fed. They need to be encouraged. They need to be challenged. They need to be corrected. They need to be pastored. They need to be mentored. They need to be counseled so that they might be formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So instead of jumping in a boat and going the direct route through the Mediterranean Sea to Ephesus, he takes the long, slower route, the inland route, going church to church, disciple by disciple, strengthening the believers. We also see this strengthening of disciples in this story about Apollos there in verses 24 through 28. Apollos, we're told, is a native of Alexandria, which means he's probably well-educated. Alexandria was a very cosmopolitan city, a very advanced city. It was the capital of the Roman district of Egypt, and it was filled with grand libraries and universities, and so he's got really good pedigree here, this Apollos does. He's well-educated. He comes to Ephesus, apparently led by the Spirit, to tell others about Jesus. We're told in verse 24 that he was eloquent and competent in the Scriptures, which tells us that not only did he know the Scriptures, but he was quite gifted at preaching the Scriptures. He was a gifted preacher of the Bible. In verse 25, we're told that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, so he knew the Gospel. We're told that he was fervent in spirit, 
You might have a little footnote there that tells you that in the original Greek, the definite article is definitely there. So we ought to read that, that he was fervent in the Spirit. That's going to be key for us. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. In verse 26, he spoke boldly in the synagogues. But we're told that he only knew the baptism of John. Now, scholars debate about whether or not Apollos was genuinely a converted Christian here at this point or not, since he only knew the baptism of John. And and they surmise that perhaps this means that he didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. But I think there's indication here from the scriptures that Apollos did have the Holy Spirit at this point because he was fervent in the Spirit And the rest of how we see him described here by Luke seems to be descriptive of someone who is a believer. And so I I, I believe that Apollos was a genuinely converted follower of Christ here. But he had only known, that is, he has only experienced the baptism of John. He had never been baptized into Jesus, which means he had never known about or taken part in believer's baptism and we're not told that he ever does but he does end up baptizing people and so i believe that at some point he submitted to believer's baptism but regardless look at verse 26 he's preaching in the synagogue there preaching boldly but these this this lay couple Achilla and priscilla they listen to him and they pick up on something they hear a deficiency in his theological training they pick up on that And so they pull him aside and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. So what is Apollos' deficiency here? Well, we're not told. We we don't know. Perhaps it was that he had only known the baptism of John. Perhaps that was it, but we don't know for sure. We're told in verse 25 that he taught and spoke the things of Jesus accurately And then in verse 26, Achille and Priscilla take him aside and explain to him the ways of God more accurately. It's the same word in both verses. And so it's not that his theology is in some way inaccurate. He's not a false teacher. He's not a false prophet or espousing false doctrine. And that's an important distinction to make. Because if he was a false teacher, then Achille and Priscilla would not take him aside privately. They would publicly denounce him. But they don't do that. Instead, they pull him aside privately and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So his deficiency is some kind of lack of theological training. It's not that he's teaching something wrong. He just needs more training, more mentoring. He's a gifted preacher in whom is some kind of theological deficiency. And he's helped by this lay couple. He's helped by Achilla and Priscilla. They teach him the way of God more accurately. And Apollos is genuinely helped by this because then we see him being sent out from the church in Ephesus. The church at Ephesus um, getting behind him and commending him to be sent out. And they even write a letter telling the folks in Corinth to receive him and welcome him as he comes to that. And then what happens as he gets to Corinth? Verse 27, the end of verse 27 When he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So he he helps the believers. He greatly helps the Christians there. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. 
What we learn from this initial story about Apollos is that sometimes even seasoned saints need to be corrected, need to be trained, need to be mentored, need to be discipled. Even pastors and elders need to be trained. We need correction. We need mentoring. None of us has been fully sanctified yet. Positionally, we've been made perfect because of the righteousness of Christ with which we are clothed by faith. But, but practically, we've still, all of us, we've got a long ways to go. And one of the greatest instruments that God uses to grow us and to sanctify us and to form us into the likeness of Christ is the relationships with one another in the body of Christ. And Aquila and Priscilla here model beautifully for us how to correct, how to encourage and strengthen one another in the body. They don't call him out publicly. They don't tweet about him. They don't, don't gossip to their friends about him. Would you hear what, what Apollos is teaching? No, they, they pull him aside privately. They teach him the word more accurately. It's done in love and it's done with grace. And by the way, I think we see in Apollos here a really good example of one who receives that kind of correction and strengthening. Remember, this guy has the equivalence of a Ph.D. from Alexandria. He's got the right education. He's got the right pedigree. He's got the right gifting. He's a gifted preacher. And yet he humbly listens to correction and instruction from this lay couple, Aquila and Priscilla. He trusts the Spirit of God in them. And he trusts their heart that they love Jesus first and him second. And so he humbly listens to what they have to say, and he is helped by them and goes on to bear great fruit in ministry in Corinth. Church, like the churches in Galatia and Phrygia who needed to be strengthened, we too need to be strengthened in our faith. We have a long ways to go. We're on the right track, but we have a lot of areas where we need growth and maturity. This is true of us corporately. This is true of us individually as well. None of us is fully sanctified, nor will we be until Jesus brings us home. And so a huge part of why God has each of us here is so that we might be sanctified as well as be used as one of his instruments in the sanctification of our brothers and sisters around us. Each of us who is a member of this church is both a discipler and a disciplee. Each of us who is a member is both at the same time, we are Aquila and Priscilla, and we're also an Apollos. We both are called upon to challenge, correct, encourage, and disciple others, and we are at the same time the one who needs to be challenged, the one who needs to be corrected, encouraged, and discipled, by someone else. And so part of being committed to gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making is to fully engage in the body of Christ so that each of us is growing in our walk with Jesus, our obedience to Jesus, our knowledge of Jesus. We want each and every member of our church to both be growing and helping others grow in their walk with Jesus. We want each and every member of this church to look more like Jesus this time next year than you do today. 
And that's part of what we can expect to happen as we devote ourselves to gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making where God has put us. So that's the first snapshot. The second snapshot of what results from this kind of disciple-making is not just that disciples are strengthened, but secondly, unconverted religious people are saved. So Paul finally arrives in Ephesus, and he immediately finds some folks whom Luke calls disciples. And he asks them a question to try to gauge where they are spiritually. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer is, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That's a good indication that that person is not a genuine follower of Christ, that they don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul follows that up with verse 3. Well, then, into what were you baptized? What was that all about? You were baptized. What, what were you baptized into? And they answer, well, into John's baptism. So perhaps they are disciples of John, but they're not disciples of Jesus. Not yet, at least. And so Paul explains to them, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, That is Jesus. And on hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why were they baptized? Well, because they did what Paul explained baptism is in verse 4. They believed in the one who was to come after John, which is Jesus. And upon believing, they were baptized. And then verse 6, then Paul lays his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So unlike Apollos in the previous passage, these folks here in Ephesus are not yet regenerate believers in Christ. And we can be sure of that because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And then they get the Holy Spirit. And the one distinguishing characteristic of a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ is that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And since these folks at the beginning of the chapter are not indwelt by the Spirit, then they are not yet regenerate believers. They're religious, they're spiritual, but they're lost. As lost as anyone is who has yet to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope and receive the indwelling of the Spirit. They receive the baptism of John, which we're told is a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of preparation, preparing the way for Jesus. And so they were religious, but they were unconverted. And as a result of of God using Paul's gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making, they come to faith in Christ. They believe on Christ. And they submit to believers' baptism. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the speaking in tongues and the prophesying that occurs here, as we've said before in our walk through the book of Acts, is not normative for us today. And I would say that it's not even normative in the book of Acts. It's not something that even happens every time someone comes to faith, even in the book of Acts. So it's not meant to be prescriptive to us today, but rather descriptive of how God chose to move at a particular time in redemptive history. What is normative for us here, what is prescriptive for us here, is this gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making that results not only in disciples being strengthened, but in the unconverted religious that come to genuine faith in Christ. 
I wonder, are there any unconverted religious people in this room this morning? Probably so. I hope so. I hope that our church is a safe place where those who think they are genuine followers of Christ but aren't can come and be exposed to the gospel. I would hope that people like are described here in chapter 19 would be drawn to the centrality of the gospel here, would be drawn to the foundation of of the word of God here, would be drawn to the fact that Jesus has made much of here. I would hope that God would use that to draw people into our church gathering such that whenever we gather, there are probably many who think that they are good with God. But through the proclamation of the gospel and the explanation of the word, they recognize that they are still lost and that they need a savior. Are there unconverted people that visit our base groups? Again, I hope so. I sure hope so. I would hope that our base groups also are like missional outposts. Missional outposts away from these four walls. Examples of gospel hospitality. Where people who are far from God, even those who don't think that they are far from God, can come and be exposed not only to the gospel, but exposed to God's people who continue to hold out to them a biblical gospel and urge them to trust in Christ alone for rescue. And then thirdly, a third snapshot of what results from this kind of disciple making. Number one, believers are strengthened. Disciples are sanctified. Number two, the unconverted religious people are saved. And then number three, believers reorient their affections and confess their sins. And we see this in the story of the sons of Sceva, these seven charlatans who happen to be the sons of the high priest of Ephesus, a man by the name of Sceva. The setting for this story is given in verses 11 and 12. God was doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. God was doing some pretty amazing things in Ephesus through Paul. God was doing them. Luke makes it explicitly clear. God was doing this and Paul was simply the the chosen vehicle through which God was performing these miracles. Now again, this is not prescriptive for us, but rather descriptive. This is not an example of something that we should try to emulate Although many have. And we we know that there are many charlatans that are out there that are wrongly applying this scripture. I googled this week, prayer cloth miracle. And and just believe me, there there are no shortage of charlatans that are willing to sell you one. You You know what the difference is between the miracles that the apostles performed in the first century and many of the charlatans that we see on places like television today. You know what the difference is? In the first century, nobody could ever argue that those things weren't genuine. It was never up for question. There were no smoke and mirrors. There was no uh, 
questionable circumstances about whether the sick person was really sick or the lame person was really lame. None of that. Nobody ever questioned that. They all knew those people because they all grew up with them in, in that town. Just because we only see charlatans today on television trying to invoke the name of Jesus in order to gain a following doesn't mean that the miracles of the first century weren't genuine. They were. And nobody could argue that they weren't in the first century. Well, today's charlatans come from a long line of charlatans over the centuries that go all the way back to a place like ancient Ephesus in the first century. And we see some of them in this story. So the, so the setting for the story of the seven sons of Sceva was God pouring out these visible miracles in the city of Ephesus. But whenever God's kingdom rule is manifested so visibly and so powerfully, you can bet that there will be imposters and charlatans that are trying to cash in on that. And we see some of that in this story. It's what happens in verse 13 and following. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had the evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. That word exorcist literally means one who adjures or, or, or one who urges. And that's what they were doing. They, they were urging the evil spirits that had possessed these folks. I adjure you by the Jesus that Paul preaches about. In other words, I, I urge you by, the, by his God, the God of that guy Paul that's preaching in town. I urge you by his God to come out. And we're told that some of the guys doing this were the seven sons of a, quote, Jewish high priest named Sceva. Now, I think it's important for us to note that there is no title for high priest of Ephesus. There's no such thing. No such thing at all. The only official high priest was the one who served in Jerusalem at the temple in Jerusalem. And this guy Sceva was never one of those. And so most likely, scholars believe, that he simply appropriated the title of high priest in Ephesus in order to gain some kind of authority or position over the diaspora Jews that had ended up in this Asian city. But his title also presumably afforded his sons the opportunity to serve essentially as shamans and exercising demons out of people in Ephesus. And, and I... I think that we can gather from this that they were at least in part successful in that capacity. That they actually were doing this. They're, they're called itinerant Jewish exorcists. Which tells us that on some level they've been exorcising demons successfully. Or at least the demons were allowing them to be successful or allowing them to appear successful. Until what happens? Until they mention the name Jesus. When the sons of Sceva say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. How does the evil spirit respond to them? Verse 15. Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? And then verse 16, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, leaped on the sons of Sceva, mastered them all, that is, possessed them, 
overpowered them so that the seven sons of Sceva fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, as we'll see next week, this is ultimately going to, to, to ultimately lead to a riot in Ephesus. But for now, I simply want us to focus on the effect that this had on the believers in Ephesus. Look at verse 18. What happened as a result of this encounter? First, three things. First, believers came confessing and divulging their practices. That, that's, an, that's an interesting thing that happened. As a result of this, believers in Jesus came confessing their sins and divulging the evil practices that they had been giving themselves to. So something occurred that made them want to come and confess their sins and, and divulge themselves of evil practices. They had just seen a display of evil overpower people. And they're, they're saying, I want to divulge myself of all the evil practices. I want to confess my sins. That's the first thing. Second thing. Those who had practiced sorcery brought their magic books and burned them. Their, their books of sorcery that were for them their point of access to that which was evil. This was, this was the, the vehicle through which they accessed that which was evil. And they brought them and they threw them down and they burned them. They had just seen a very visible display of evil. And they're divesting themselves of their sorcery books. And then lastly, at the end of this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail Mightily, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's word increased because now the believers were listening to it. They were reading it. They were obeying it. And so it increased in its influence, which led to it prevailing mightily. The word of the Lord began to prevail over their sin nature. It began to prevail over their flesh. And it began to make a difference, not just in the church, but in the broader culture of Ephesus, as we'll see next Sunday. But why did this happen? What happened to cause these believers to to come confessing their sins and divulging their evil practices and bringing their sorcery books to, to, to burn them? Well, what happened to cause the word of the Lord to increase and prevail mightily? I can tell you this. It wasn't the display of power and strength from the evil spirit. That wasn't it. It wasn't that they heard about the strength and power of what had happened of this evil spirit who caused the seven sons of Sceva to run off in their skivvies. That wasn't it. It wasn't because of the display of power from evil. If their fear was the fear of evil spirits, they never would have brought their books of sorcery that was their point of access to that which is evil. It wasn't the display of the evil spirit. No, we're told in verse 17 that when they heard about what happened, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was extolled. 
That word extolled means it was magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus was glorified. The name of the Lord Jesus was made much of. This was the fear of God on these Ephesian believers. This was a display of the, of the fear of God. That's what led them to come confessing their sins, divulging their evil practices and burning their magic books. The evil spirit had said in verse 15, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? In other words, I can overpower you, sons of Sceva. I've got you. You're nothing big, but I can't overpower Jesus. I can't, I can't do anything with him. I can't overpower him. And by the way, neither can I overpower Paul because Paul knows this Jesus. Unlike you guys, he knows him and the power of Jesus is in Paul. And I can't overpower him. But I can overpower you. See, Paul had been preaching and teaching the word of the Lord accurately, boldly, from the hall of Tyrannus for two entire years. This gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting disciple-making. And so when this happens, the people recognize that this is what Paul has been telling them about all along. They see it. This is the Jesus that overcame death. This is the Jesus that defeated sin and death forever at Calvary. This is the Jesus who had lived the perfect life and achieved a righteousness that none of us could in a thousand lifetimes, a million lifetimes, a righteousness without which we could never be justified before God. And church, if we keep holding out a biblical gospel and we keep ourselves grounded in the word, not just in our pulpit ministry, but in our one-on-one interactions with one another in the body of Christ, if we continue to do this, allowing the word to increase and prevail in our own lives and in our church, and if we keep extolling Jesus, if we keep exalting and lifting high and making much of Jesus, then we can expect that over time, believers will begin to reorient their affections and confess their sins. And it doesn't take a display of demonic power for this to happen. All it takes is you and I, church, continuing to be gospel-centered, word-based, and Jesus-exalting, not just in our pulpit ministry, but in our one another ministry, in our conversations with one another throughout the week and in our base groups, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. Disciples will be strengthened. And the unconverted religious that find themselves in our gatherings will come to faith in Christ. And believers will be reoriented in their affections such that they love Jesus so much more than they love their own sin. So they turn from their sin, they confess their sin, they repent of their sin, and they grow in grace. Church, may we be so committed to a gospel-centered, word-based, Jesus-exalting ministry that we would see these things happen among us, not just today and tomorrow, but for the generation to come, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this snapshot of what you did in Ephesus 
We recognize this is you. Perhaps if there's one more descriptor that we can apply to the ministry of Paul and his companions that we see on the pages of this scripture is that it was Holy Spirit filled, led by the Spirit to be centered on the gospel, grounded in your word, exalting Jesus, his person and his work. Father, that's what it means for us to be your witnesses. And so, Father, help us. Help us to devote ourselves to that. Help us to, to persist in that. Help us to persevere in that so that you might strengthen us and conform us to the image of your Son so that you might use this ministry to convert unconverted religious people. And Father, so that you might even today perhaps reorient our affections so that we turn from sin and trust in Christ who saved us from those sins. Father, we pray for those who are among us this morning, perhaps unconverted religious people who think they are good with God. Father, if they've not professed faith in Jesus Christ, don't let them leave believing that untruth. Don't let them leave believing that they are good with you apart from professing Jesus as their only hope. We pray, Father, that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus Christ this very moment. Oh, God, would you lead them across the line of faith right now? It's not about raising a hand. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about checking a box on a comment card. It's about doing business with God. And so, God, we pray that you would lead them across the line of faith right now to trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross as their only hope. God, would you redeem a worshiper back to yourself right now? Bring a person from death to life. And Father, that is the ministry that you've called us to, to hold out the hope of the gospel to a world that's lost and dying with no hope of what comes next apart from you. Help us to love you enough and to love them enough to be compelled to bring them this good news. May we do it only for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.